Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And we are so delighted to have a brand new guest this episode. We sure are. This week, we're joined by Jess Battis, who teaches literature and creative writing in the Department of English at the University of Regina. Their research focuses on LGBTQ histories, medieval and 18th century studies, and representations of disability and neurodiversity in pop culture. And we're going to learn all about Jess in the sorting chat. But before you tell us about yourself, Jess, I feel very confident that listeners will want to know about your house and your Patronus? Oh, this is a real sore spot. So (gasps) I've consistently been sorted into Hufflepuff in spite of like the clear fact that I'm Ravenclaw. But when I told my students this, they were like, no, you're Hufflepuff. It's very obvious (laughs) from everything that you do and say. (laughs) But yeah, I, I am a Hufflepuff in spite of taking multiple tests with the explicit desire to get Ravenclaw. I am a Hufflepuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing that you've actually gone in and attempted to game the system to get Ravenclaw. Isn't that a Ravenclaw move? Like it's it really is. (laughs) It really is, and it's a very Hufflepuff result. That no matter how hard you try to game it, it just keeps being like, "Mm -mm, no, sorry, you are kind and committed to open and egalitarian pedagogy. (laughs) Who knew? Jess, part two of this very urgent question is not only what is your house. (laughs) But do you have a Patronus? I do, but it's like, it's been so long since I've done these tests. I think it was like a stag, I think. Ooh. But but what about in your heart? (laughs) I really identify with Luna's Patronus as a hare. And I Mm -hmm. identify with like my my Patronus being a prey animal. That makes a lot of sense. Because I'm just like running from social interactions left and right. 
Yes. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right for me. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Marcel, did you not declare your own Patronus to be a prairie hare? When we talked about Matronuses versus Patronuses, I decided that my Matronus would be a prairie hare, those giant mutant rabbits that live in the prairies. But my Patronus, according to Pottermore, is a magpie, and I am super into that. Oh, that <laughs> sure. is great. Magpies are vicious cannibals, and I love it. <laughs> according to Pottermore, mine was some sort of fancy cat. And I was like, that is incorrect. I am not fancy, and all the cats I have were born in dumpsters. So how dare you? <laughs> Jess, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about yourself that will help our listeners get a sense of, of who you are and all the exciting things you bring to this discussion of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? Sure. The Chamber of Secrets. Secrets. So from my own reading perspective, I am a queer person and a gender queer person and an autistic person slash on the spectrum. So those are kind of the different lenses, I guess, that I bring to reading a text like Harry Potter. And that's where a lot of my interest in the kind of disability and neurodiversity discussion comes out. In terms of other kind of like academic professional stuff, I'm a, a medievalist by training, but a lot of the work that I've done in the past five years has been more about uh, disability studies. And I'm a huge pop culture nerd. A lot of my work connects with pop culture to the point where I think it made supervisors nervous because they were like, do you really want to write a thesis on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And I was like, sure do. <laughs> but then I didn't. I didn't actually. It ended up becoming a book, which I wrote as a grad student, which you should never do. No. But I did. So yeah, a lot of my interests sort of float around between pop culture and um, representations of disability and neurodiversity in pop culture. But I'm also super interested in disability in the medieval era. And I'm a huge nerd for the 18th century as well. I know listeners are going to ask, so will you tell mm, us mm -hmm. what your book about Buffy the Vampire Slayer is called? It's called Blood Relations, and it's about queer families in <gasps> Buffy and Angel. I wrote this when I was still a grad student, and it's like, when I read it now, it's a little bit painful because of my like baby queer grad student intense confidence slash intense insecurity. Like it really comes through <laughs> those discussions. Aww. But yeah, it's mostly about queer families. I should probably say, too, that I have a book that's coming out that's about gay wizards, like the history of like queer and <laughs> queer and neurodivergent wizards. Yeah, you yes. should probably say that. Let's <laughs> describe it as the gay wizard book. Yeah. When can we look for that book? Right now, the publisher just says, like, sometime in 2021. Great. Mm. But uh, it's basically a survey of the, the literary figure of the wizard from the medieval era and how that gets adapted in medievalist popular texts. Uh, so I talk about, like, She-Ra uh, and contemporary sort of queer medievalist-inspired <laughs> television shows. I guess the central argument is that, like, a, wizards are gay, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> yep. Checks out. They're sort of like neurodivergent by default, because mm -hmm. you can't tell me that Gandalf is not on the spectrum. There's just like no way that I will be convinced of that. 
it opens up opportunities for queer and trans readers in particular and neurodivergent readers to see themselves in these figures who think differently or think queerly is kind of the central argument. Uh, This sounds incredible. When the book is actually out, we should just have you back on to talk about your book because it sounds applicable. Ah, revision, where we look back at what we've already covered, remind ourselves that we really did learn something, realize that there's still so much left to cover, take a few deep breaths, and then move forward to new questions that we want to ask. So far for this book, we've talked about feminist theory, queer theory, the Lord of the Rings for some reason, and Mm -hmm. gothic literature. (laughs) And with each new approach to the text, we've come up with even more ideas and questions. Queer theory builds on feminist theory, and our discussion of gothic literature left us with some pretty big questions about the ways this text represents evil and the so-called monstrous. So Jess, before you introduce disability studies to us in the next segment, can you tell us a little bit about why the Harry Potter books in general stand out to you as needing this kind of critical lens? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of things the author hasn't thought closely about, but they haven't thought a lot about the representation of kind of non-abled bodies and what that's going to look like. And the sort of weird line between humanity and monstrosity in the book is often one that can get mapped on to discussions of disability. But I think probably the most specific element is the idea of the genetics of magic, the way in which magic is passed down through families, and what it means to be a wizard who does not have magic or who kind of has half magic and the ways in which that discussion of magic and the discussion of racial purity all get mixed up in this weird, like, genocidal cauldron. That, to me, are the sort of, like, the main touchstones for thinking about how disability studies can be a really useful lens for talking about this series. Mm, I mean, genocidal cauldron is a a good turn of phrase to describe the kind of, like, Mm -hmm. light eugenics that operate throughout the Harry mm-hmm. Potter world that that again feel like a thing that that the author has not thought through. Mm-hmm. As you point out, there are many things that fall into that category. <laughs> My real sort of revelation: the first time we had a conversation about disability studies in the Harry Potter books was we did a panel discussion with Lydia X C Brown at Tufts University, and they mm-hmm. introduced a lot of this thinking into our readings so that I was a little bit more prepped when Rowling came out with that Pottermore article about illness. Oh, and like mundane versus magical illnesses. Yeah. Like, so I guess somebody had asked her if like wizards get sick or if wizards sort of, you know, are vulnerable to the same diseases that muggles are. And she wrote this Pottermore article basically saying that there were no mundane illnesses or disabilities in the wizarding world Mm -hmm. and that the only examples that we ever saw were of magically caused injuries that that was all that existed in the wizarding world 
and in one fell swoop really clearly demonstrated like a total mm-hmm. lack of interest in like making any space for disabled readers in her world. But then also like the main character wears glasses. Like it's it's so <laughs> it boggles the mind that you can as like one defining feature of your main character, you have them wearing glasses and then to turn around and say like, oh, no, there are no mundane illnesses or disabilities, which is like, what are you doing? It absolutely doesn't hold up to like even the lightest of critical thought. So, Jess, do you see places where that kind of what was the phrase again? Genocidal cauldron, (laughs) where that's sort of bubbling to the surface in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets in particular? I think we see it a lot with the character of Filch, which you've you've talked about in other Mm, episodes mm -hmm. too, like the idea Mm -hmm. of Filch being a squib and the way in which squib is an epithet in the series. Like it's a terrible thing that you say about someone. Mm. And we know it's a terrible thing because Ron says it. (laughs) Ron is the voice who kind of says the thing that you're not supposed to say in a way that he hasn't thought about it at all. But it's one of those moments in particular where in the Chamber of Secrets, when Ron is trying to explain how squibs work to Harry, he's like, yeah, isn't it sad? Isn't it tragic that there are these people that don't have the type of magical agency that we do? And a phrase that also comes up quite a bit in Chamber of Secrets is half-life. The idea that Voldemort is half alive Mm. because of all of the ways in which he has tried to survive in a form that is not physical in the way that is traditional Hmm. to the other characters. This idea that, well, yeah, some people who aren't supposed to survive can survive if they have to. Hmm. uh, But we're going to have a lot of complicated feelings about that. Filch's squibness, I guess, if that's a word, is is an area in which I think that discussion comes out quite a bit and needs to be unpacked, as we say. <laughs> as we like to say. I mean, <laughs> Neville is also at one point refers to himself as being like almost a squib. Mm-hmm. Like his family thought he was a squib. And the narrative, the sort of revelation that Neville endured a childhood of abuse that his family used to sort of ensure that he wasn't a squib or seemingly kill him in the process because if it turned out he was a squib, his life was not of value to them, Mm -hmm. seems to have some pretty striking ableist eugenics subtexts to it. When I was rereading the scene where Harry comes across the quick spell course that Filch is taking... Mm. Mm-hmm. I thought, does Hogwarts have a center for accessibility? And if so, what a trash fire would this center be? Because like, it makes me think about the conversations that disabled students are often forced to have with faculty, where faculty essentially vet their contracts with the center for accessibility and say like, okay, it says here you need this element. Do you really need it? Is there a way that I could not provide this oh. this for you in this informal conversation that we're having, which is actually a formal conversation? And it always strikes me that Hogwarts is supposed to be this space that is diverse and welcoming, but it's so ableist in every way. Mm-hmm. And the idea that 
someone like Ron and even someone like Harry who have such complicated backgrounds that they come from, that there's no way for them to see Filch as fully human. And there's no way for them to not see him as a tragic figure for taking a correspondence course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's such a heartbreaking scene. And I think it, it's heartbreaking because of Filch's reaction when he knows that Harry has seen it. And you know in mm-hmm. that reaction that the idea of trying to learn magic is something that fills him with shame and that likely Mm -hmm. he has been bullied his entire life around this. And he certainly doesn't trust the students of Hogwarts to treat him with any compassion. Mm -hmm. These students who have been told since the day that they arrived that their having been selected to be students at Hogwarts makes them special and better Mm -hmm. than other people who were not selected There is that underlying aspect of Hogwarts, which is because it is both positioned by the text as the place where we would all desperately love to be as this sort of haven outside of the like crushing normalcy of the muggle world. And yet at the same time is something you only gain access to if you are special in this particular way. There is just sort of this undertone of like, those who don't deserve to be here, who are somehow less. I often see a connection between Hagrid and Filch as two characters who both have what we might call learning disabilities. But Hagrid is the good disabled character because he or they, depending upon how we want to kind of... Like Hagrid's gender, we could talk about forever. But um, their presentation and performance is really entertaining throughout the book, although there are so many scenes where Hagrid struggles with instructions, uh, struggles to figure out what what he's supposed to do. And Filch is in the same boat in terms of not quite having the same access to resources at Hogwarts or access to the same powers. Uh, but we have to see Filch as villainous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's how the text insists on positioning him. So that kind of reminds me of another way that the text positions for us, disability and neurodivergence with the characters who are supposed to be bad guys, right? So like Crab and Goyle, and then even Dudley Dursley, like all three of these characters are supposed to be bad. They're not like the villains, but they're, you know, bullies or bad guys. And they're all, we're told, quote unquote, stupid in some way or another. And that like those two things are supposed to kind of go hand in hand. So your discussion of Filch just really reminds me of the way that these three characters are likewise sort of framed as being less human. And that lack of humanity is marked by the type of intelligence that they have. One of the scenes in Chamber of Secrets that always unsettles me is the like polyjuice potion transformation scene where Mm. Ron and Harry Mm -hmm. literally can't imagine themselves inhabiting the bodies of Crab and Goyle because they are positioned as being fat and being stupid. This kind of deadly combination within the narrative and how wrong that sort of transformative magic goes. And a lot of it is just this massive failure of empathy. Like we don't get into the minds of Crab and Goyle because they're literary devices. 
We could also talk forever about like the opacity of Slytherin as a house. Like everyone in Slytherin is a villain. Mm -hmm. Everyone has some Mm -hmm. kind of physical issue or mental issue as opposed to the other houses. Mm -hmm. That, That point about the failure of empathy in that scene when literally what we see them do is like walk a mile in these characters' shoes. Mm-hmm. Like they literally embody these characters, walk in their shoes, step into their sort of like the private domestic sphere of the Slytherin house. And at no point is any of that used as an opportunity to sort of promote or imagine the possibilities of empathetic identification even though that's like so latent in the idea of the polyjuice potion, right? That you become the other and in the process, maybe learn to see the world through their eyes somehow. That's just like not how that transformation is imagined. We even see how poorly Draco treats his so-called friends, you know, and that doesn't provide anybody with the opportunity for reflection or insight. <laughs> it feels to me as well that that scene with the polyjuice potion and that whole narrative, it's one of the first moments in the series where we start to see the author's explicit transphobia mm. because this is the one magic you're not supposed to do. There's the killing curse, you're not supposed to do that, but it's like how dare you transform your body into another body? Mm. Of course it's going to go wrong for you and it's going to be an unpleasant transformation. And man, that scene in the girls' bathroom, to me, hits real different in 2020, thinking about what the author has said about transphobia. How Percy literally has to appear and be like, did you know this is the women's room? Yeah, we get it, Percy. It's a magic school. They don't have unisex bathrooms? Like, it's just (laughs) baffling to me. Even Moaning Myrtle has to be like, do you know that your boy's in the girls' room? Did you know? Yeah, we, we get it. Like, is there not an accessible washroom on all of the Hogwarts campus? Even from the afterlife, Myrtle is required to stridently uphold the gender binary. Yeah, it's unfair. <laughs> it was, I mean, the, the whole question of what resources Hogwarts has made available for the general well-being of students seems to be none ever for anybody <laughs> in any way like there is one nurse mm-hmm. and that appears to be the beginning and ending of the forms of care available to the school <laughs> full of children one of the exercises i did in a teen lit class once was i got my students to create a strategic plan for hogwarts <laughs> and They first had to read our school's strategic plan and critique it, and that was its own discussion. But then they had to come up with a strategic plan for Hogwarts. And what every group decided upon was that Hogwarts needed counseling services because all of the students are traumatized. Where is the counselor? Yes. Or is is trauma a mundane illness that we don't acknowledge in the magical world? We don't feel things in Hogwarts. We just defer them. We just get a deferral on our feelings. So these are a lot of, I think, really crucial discussion points for this text. But before we get further into really sort of delving into this textual minutiae, I think we should learn a little bit more about disability studies. What do you say? Let's do it. One of the best parts of having a substitute teacher in transfiguration class is that 
we don't have to do any lesson prep. Today, Professor Battis is stepping in to give us a primer on the field of disability studies. Can you give us like a one to two sentence definition of disability studies? What does it mean as a field? I don't know how to do that. I did try to find an extremely concise quote from a disability theorist, and it's just one of those fields that's very tricky to define. What I will attempt to offer is this. Disability studies as a field tends to be divided between academics who are very interested in the history of impairment and how the experience of impairment has appeared in different eras. And then on the other side, we have disabled creatives and writers and activists who are interested in recovering the experience of disability mm-hmm. and how an able-bodied world has created conditions for survival for disabled people that are virtually impossible and untenable. So the tension within disability studies is between the studies part and the history and the activism part. But where both of these spaces converge, I would say, is in an analysis of what it is like to exist as a person with a disability in a world that is not designed for you. So with that division in mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about the origins of disability studies, and then we'll touch upon a few key critics within that area. So as I've said, I teach medieval studies, and so you wouldn't think I talk a lot about disability, but actually I do talk a lot about disability. Students are often surprised to hear that the long medieval era had all sorts of interesting vocabularies for talking about what we might call impairment. And I think the most common example is the idea of the saint. The medieval saint often has a body that is non-normative. Often there's a type of a physical disability or impairment going on. And there were many ways in this era in which what we might now think of as disability was visualized as a kind of a mark, a divine mark that made you different. A literary example that I sometimes bring up is there's a, a late medieval writer named Thomas Hockleave, and his work is all about anxiety. It's all about him having anxiety attacks in taverns often, and his friends being like, hey, Thomas, what's up? You seem real nervous. It seems like maybe you're having a panic attack. And students are often really interested to encounter work like that because yeah. concepts like anxiety and disability seem to us very contemporary. But we're talking about them in in every single era going, you know, all the way back to the ancient world. Now, if we think about this field coalescing, if we're trying to come up with a date at which modern disability studies starts to cohere, we might say the mid-1970s. In 1973, we get revisions to something called the Rehabilitation Act in the United States, which is really a vocational law which prevents discrimination for self-identified disabled people. And it's a very partial revision to that law, and it's not that inclusive. But it comes about as a result of really intense activism on the part of disabled communities in the early 1970s. And a lot of this work is documented in a really interesting uh, Netflix documentary called Crip Camp. Oh, I've heard really good things about Crip Camp. Yeah. It is guilty of a bit of what is described as inspiration porn, in which we see a lot of disabled people doing inspirational things. 
And so it is frustrating in that way, but it shows a lot of the interesting ways in which communities that didn't have access to a lot of resources were able to kind of create their own living spaces, particularly through this camp that was very popular for people with physical and mental disabilities in the 1970s. There's something really interesting here about how sort of rooting the origin of disability studies in a sort of activist movement that fought for rights and that sort of rights-based movements often need to emerge out of a sense of like collective or shared identity, even if it's only contingently created collective identity, right? That you have to say sort of we have this thing in common so that we will mm-hmm. we will fight. Mm-hmm. And we can look to lots of other sort of contingently created collectives, like the whole idea of like LGBTQ, like these are a lot of really quite different communities mm-hmm. that have decided to say, actually, we all work together to fight collectively for our rights. It's, I think, really valuable to point back and say, like, disability predates the 1970s significantly by thousands of years. But what we're seeing is a sort of articulation of an identity that is about a need to do a kind of work together. Absolutely. In the Canadian context, I think we start to see really visible activism in the early 1980s when the Canadian Charter is being revised. And again, these are really partial revisions and kind of partial protections. But the 1980s are a real kind of watershed moment for what we might think of as the academic arm of disability studies. That's when we see journals like Disability Studies Quarterly are starting to appear. And it's actually really fascinating. They're online archives go all the way back to the first issue, which I think is 1980. I don't have it written down, but it's sort of mid 80s. And it's more of a newsletter. It's much more community based. And then it becomes more and more theoretical as we get into the 90s. I'd argue that, you know, one of the most important disability activists in the 1980s is Audre Lorde, because Mm. the work that she's putting forth in cancer journals, it's often not described as disability theory. We talk a lot about the critical race and the sexuality connections in her work, Mm -hmm. but she's actually producing a lot of vital discussions of what it is to be a queer Black disabled woman in the 1980s in that text. One of my favorite moments in teaching Audre Lorde, and this happens in virtually every class, a student will say, she sounds angry. And another student will say, she is angry. (laughs) Students often have implicit biases, and of course, academics have implicit biases about the way that we receive work by Black women in particular, and women of color in particular. If we're unpacking disability studies, we can't talk about it outside of critical race studies, and we can't talk about it outside of intersectionality. Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah, Jess, the the connections that you're drawing here, particularly, I think, between queer theory and disability studies and feminist theory and critical race theory. I mean, one is really amplifying a conversation Marcel and I've I've been having over and over again, which is like, as much as we're trying to pull these theories out, they are fundamentally inseparable. Like you can't talk about disability without talking about race. You can't talk about queerness without talking about gender. Like all of these things, you know, overlap and intersect so powerfully. And also... I keep thinking back to that moment when there's this overlapping emergence of all of these fields that start to have 
names and journals and originary major texts that identify them. And there's obviously something really powerful happening in the 90s in academia. And I am really interested in this thinking about like how much of it is a two decade later response to activist movements, mm, mm-hmm. which I'm starting to suspect like a lot of it is just academia's belated response to the activism that emerged in the mid 20th century. That's a really good point, because I think there's a lot of codification that's happening in the 90s in theory in particular. And this is also the period that gives us like transphobia 101 in the 90s, like the way that literature approaches trans bodies, you mostly get academics who are creating this category where they're like trans people, disabled people, uh, people that we would now call non-binary, but we don't quite have a language for that. Anyone that's different, it's very cool and interesting for us to position you as a metaphor Mm. so Mm. that we can talk about the ways in which we should actually kind of be more inclusive and diverse in our presentations. But first, we're going to map this metaphor onto your bodies. Mm. And we get a lot of like really intensely transphobic scholarship at this time that we can link to ableist scholarship because Hmm. a lot of these critics are talking about non-traditional bodies. And the tagline is often, aren't they interesting? Which really is one of those perspectives That is such a fucking bummer when you're the person with that body. It's a super bummer. It's like, oh, am I interesting? Great. Love to hear it. Thanks for making me an object of study. The question that academia is often asking is, can we create a field around a community Mm -hmm. and can we do it without talking to them? Like, is there a way? (laughs) Is there a way that we could create a studies but not consult with the people that we're studying. What might be useful at this point is to consider sort of two different prevailing modes of looking at disability, which we often describe as the kind of medical model Mm -hmm. of disability versus the social model. Mm. So I'm going to quote Eli Clare, who is one of my favorite disability scholars, who is a queer and trans disabled scholar. And Clare describes the medical model as one that's rooted in the field of medicine, obviously. He Mm -hmm. says, it defines disability as a medical problem located in individual bodies and frames those problems as curable, and that this emerges from the medical industrial complex. The social model, Claire says, in resistance to the medical model, this disability rights movement has created a social model that separates impairment, so a physical, emotional, cognitive, or developmental limitation, difference, or variation, separates that from the idea of ableism, which are the material and social conditions that restrict people with impairments. And Claire's central argument here is that the social model declares that ableism is more disabling than impairment. Mm. Mm-hmm. There are variations on that. The disability scholar Tom Shakespeare describes what he calls the cultural model, which is a bit more intersectional. The idea that the way that you define disability is going to also be influenced by your cultural background and all of your different competing identities. 
But in academic disability studies, what we often see, at least sort of in that 80s and 90s period, is more of a focus on the medical model. And as we get sort of past the 90s into the the 2000s, we start to see, I, I would argue, more of an emphasis on the social model. One of the critics who I think really defines disability studies in the early 2000s is Robert McCrewer. So McCrewer has a book called Crip Theory, in which he popularizes the term crip. And one of the most basic questions he asks in terms of querying the medical model, he says, often with the able-bodied gaze, isn't the question really just, wouldn't you prefer to be more like me? Mm. It's that question that really defines how a lot of able-bodied people look at disabled bodies and at complex minds, which is, Mm -hmm. I see your difference, I register it, I tolerate it, but at the end of the day, wouldn't you rather take a pill that would fix you? And wouldn't it be nice if you could make my experience of your life more comfortable for me? And this is absolutely a through line that I see in Leah Lakshmi, Pieps Nasemarasina's work. Care Work is one of my favorite books and one of my most frequently recommended books. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And in it, they talk specifically about that kind of genocidal utopian imagining of the future as a space sort of quote unquote free of disability, Mm -hmm. which is premised in the medical model, right? That eventually our medicine will become so advanced, our science will become so advanced that we will be able to quote unquote cure all disability. I mean, as a fat person, I know that I'm included in that sort of genocidal utopia that like mine is one of the bodies that will ultimately be cured in this sort of envisioning of the future. And Leah Lakshmi's work pushes back so hard against that idea, instead imagining these beautiful and utopian futures that center and celebrate disability, that sort of re-envision the entire world with disability justice at its heart, rather than disability always being imagined as something that ultimately needs to or that we ultimately want to disappear. Mm -hmm. It's such an exciting imagining. Another critic who I think her work aligns with Lakshmi's is a disability studies critic named Alison Kafer. She has a book called Mm -hmm. Feminist Queer Crip, but she talks about what she calls Crip Futures. She says, I crave Crip Futures because I want to see myself represented in the future. This becomes particularly relevant when we watch science fiction in the sense that often in, say, Star Trek, for example, you don't see a lot of disabled characters because the implication is that we don't exist anymore. The Federation (laughs) mandated us out of existence. And it reminds me of um, an organization like Autism Speaks, Mm-hmm. Where really, up mm. until about a couple years ago, their whole mandate was about cure. You know, we got to run for the cure. And then autistic people were like, um, that's not how it works. And then Autism Speaks was like, oh shit, we got to change all of our posters. Now it's just going to be about how you're all heroes. You're heroes just for existing. And your parents are heroes for Oof. helping raise you as a difficult child. That idea of eugenics which we see in the Harry Potter series as well, we can map that on to a lot of these discussions of both disability and neurodiversity within kind of fantasy and popular culture as well, because it's so rare that we see those crypt futures in these texts that we love. 
Yes. I mean, I know there's a lot more that we could cover just unpacking this theory, but I wonder if this thinking about how popular cultural texts do or do not imagine sort of future and fantasy spaces as having space for disabled and neurodivergent people, if that's a good opportunity to bring it back into the Chamber of Secrets and like with this lens in mind, take a look at like, you know, how is the wizarding world imagined as a space where disabled and neurodivergent people like do or do not exist? It's a deft segue. Okay, this is a good idea. But before we move on to the next segment, can I ask a question that will maybe prepare us for that discussion a little bit? Yes, of course. Okay. So What I'm wondering is, with this background and this information in mind, what are the kinds of questions that we as readers should be bringing to a text if we want to think about it through the lens of disability studies? For me, it often boils down to narrative focus. Mm -hmm. Who gets the narrative focus? How are their experiences being represented as like dominant experiences. We've already talked about Harry a bit as a character who's kind of marginally disabled. He has debilitating headaches. He's marked physically by a scar. He's traumatized. Hears voices in ways that are really sort of problematic as well. But he ultimately coheres as a character who's able-bodied, I would argue. And that's the perspective that we're getting. So what would that series look like if it was told from Neville's perspective? I would read that book. Or what would it look like from Luna Lovegood's perspective? Beyond the simple answer that Harry is the narrator that we need for the series, what are the ways in which the author gives us the perspective of characters that are disabled? And are those representations full, nuanced, and human? Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Raise your hand if you associate having a substitute teacher with taking the day off. Uh-oh, I've got bad news for you. All of that material is showing up on your owls the segment where we turn our learning into practice and sometimes say a bunch of words to make our producer add more funny sound effects like cat, dog, owl. Granger danger. (gasps) (laughs) As we were wrapping up the previous segment, we started to get into some Harry Potter analysis. So I suggest that we just dive head first. Jess, you had some suggestions for some really key points that we can get into. Yeah, I think we could talk about Filch maybe a bit. Yeah, yeah. Let's come back to Filch. Absolutely. And I think maybe start by thinking about how the sort of medical versus 
social models of disability help us understand better how squibs are being positioned in the wizarding world. Because on the one hand, we've got this, I guess, pseudo-medical or pseudo-scientific or pseudo-genetic understanding of how magical ability is transferred across bloodlines and, you know, how people become wizards or not wizards. Mm -hmm. And then it seems in some cases to be presented as a binary. You either are a wizard or you're not a wizard. You're either born with magic or you're not born with magic. But there are all of these hints that that definition is being invented. It's being sort of socially invented and then socially imposed. And in fact, I think Neville is our best example of that because Neville says at one point that even though he had shown magical abilities as a child, they weren't sure if he was going to get that Hogwarts letter. So there is this indication that at some point somebody makes a decision that it's not just innately you're a squib or you're a wizard. Like at some point somebody has decided who counts as magical enough to be allowed to come to Hogwarts. So there seems to be something there in the sort of categorization of some people as squibs that is about the sort of social reinforcement of being magical or being non-magical. I think the author's trying to kind of bake prejudice into the wizarding community, but they're largely uncritical. It's sort of like they want the wizarding community to have similar prejudices as muggles would, but then there's no sense of how that gets dealt with or addressed. It's just, <laughs> I'm just going to throw mm-hmm. it, I'm going to throw it out there. Neville is a really fascinating example. Like both he and Filch have real deep shame over the limits, the sort of putative limits of their magic. And Neville is able really to only get access to this world because he eventually proves himself to be magical enough. It makes me think about ways in which students with invisible disabilities are often streamlined into programs, into sort of largely ableist programs, with the sense of like, well, you're going to be able to cobble together just enough resources to survive, right? If we don't change anything about the way that you access this program, as opposed to students who are sort of higher needs in terms of what they need from the institution. And the response is often, oh, maybe academia isn't for you. Ooh, yep. That whole idea of excellence that specialized educational institutions are premised on, and it's a way in which Hogwarts and academia are very, very similar, is that there is the sense that you bring out the best in students by sort of, you know, throwing them in the deep end and figuring out who can swim. Mm -hmm. That the idea is not let's gather everyone who deserves to learn, which is everyone, and then create spaces in which everyone can learn, but rather sort of let's create a deliberate series of barriers and obstacles and call that rigor and reward those who are best able to navigate those barriers and obstacles. And in the university, that's often tacit, right? It's unstated It's just sort of built into the institution design. Whereas at Hogwarts, it's made comically literal. 
mm. where it's like, <laughs> like, hello, our protagonists. You will be navigating a series of deadly challenges in every book. <laughs> There's a scholar whose work I really love named Margaret Price. She has a book called Mad at School, where she talks about ableism in academia. And it, it makes me think about how the various faculty members at Hogwarts, they're all dealing with different forms of trauma, but they don't really have the language to describe it. And they aren't given the opportunity because they're trying to be good academics in a way. Mm -hmm. Marcel's observation in our trauma episode that all of these people like lived through a very recent war mm -hmm. in which they lost friends and colleagues. <laughs> Yeah. And you're absolutely right. This is something I've never thought of before, that the degree to which the faculty are presented as villainous or non-villainous has a lot to do with how well they uphold this kind of like institutional collegiality. So mm -hmm. like we know Snape is bad because he like doesn't play along a lot of the time, right? That he is rude and terse and you know, doesn't satisfy the social expectations. I mean, he is also verbally abusive to children. So <laughs> some complexity, there's some complexity. He's a mixed bag. And physically abusive. Like it's just, he's the whole package. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Filch is similar in that sense, right? He seems to be sort of an unstable and unreliable adult. But a lot of the time, the way his villainy is being communicated to us is that he has an inappropriately strong emotional reaction to the things that are going on, particularly what he thinks at the time is the death of Mrs. Norris. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Norris, yeah. The degree to which he is like overwhelmed and infuriated by that is played by the text as an overreaction and that his sort of open display of being upset and angry is like treated by the text as further evidence that there's something wrong with Filch. Mm -hmm. I think in that moment as well, like as readers were meant to see his reaction as a kind of diminished capacity that he is not a complex enough character to have a kind of valid emotional reaction to what is happening. So it needs to be played as comedy or tragedy. We see that with Hagrid as well, but Hagrid's inappropriate emotional responses are often framed in a way that's kind of adorable, whereas Filch's are more evidence that he is not a fully functioning person in the narrative. He doesn't really get to have emotions that aren't judged in that very critical way. It really is incredible because he, as far as we, the reader, know, Filch is single-handedly responsible for the upkeep yes. and cleanliness of the entire Hogwarts castle. And he does not have, we are told, magical ability. So he's doing all of it by hand, including, as one of our listeners pointed out, art restoration, which is like my understanding, quite sophisticated and time consuming work. And so that his reaction to Mrs. Norris's petrification is treated as, you know, somehow over the top, really, when we start to think about it, is outrageous. Like it's outrageous that we have so little empathy for this character. And like, you know what? I get mad when I have to clean up 
after one person. Imagine having to clean up after hundreds of people who are mean to you. Like, it's, I think he's very reasonably upset. There's definitely an overlap in how squibs are treated in the wizarding world of ableism and classism. That, that the squibs that we see are working class characters and that the work that they do is work that is disparaged by the rest of the wizarding world. Like you wouldn't be doing this work if you had magical abilities. You are thrust not only into a sort of undervalued service role, but an undervalued service role that is like sort of repeatedly mocked by the text. Like I really just have not thought about pairing Hagrid and Filch in this kind of reading. It's a really powerful pairing because they both have these kinds of caretaker roles and they are both these liminal figures who are sort of in but not of the wizarding world who like can't quite practice magic the way a wizard would or should practice magic. And that Hagrid, as is so classic of this kind of like liberal tolerance ideology, Hagrid gets to be the good guy because he is nice and helpful. And, you know, Filch, by being, like, angry at a world that is treating him very poorly, has to be sort of cast out as the villain. He's like, he's inadequately grateful for the opportunity he has been given Mm -hmm. to do this kind of labor within this privileged institution, whereas Hagrid is so consistently grateful to Dumbledore and worships Dumbledore. Great man, Dumbledore. One of my favorite moments with Filch in the Chamber of Secrets is the scene where I think Harry first sees his correspondence course. But in that moment where he's in Filch's office, Filch comes in and he just says something like, you students and your filth. There's filth everywhere (laughs) all across this campus. And suddenly we have this radical thought where it's like, what would the series be like from the perspective of the service workers in the wizarding world? It would be very different. It would be like a bunch of privileged students just like throwing their charms around. Like who cleans up after Snape's potions class? Filch is the one who's, who's doing something like that. But the point about his lack of gratitude, I think, is a really important one in considering disability studies, because so often disabled people and in particular disabled students are seen as taking up too much space and being configured as being angry and not being grateful for the resources that do exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we've given you this accessibility contract, which maybe means you won't fail the course, but um, we also are going to need you to be real quiet about that, not challenge it in any way and be extremely grateful uh, no matter what's happening. We do see that with Hagrid, his sense of like, Hogwarts has really transformed his life in a way, but also because Hagrid is like half giant and kind of marginalized in that way, there's the sense that can he really challenge this structure safely? And you've talked in previous episodes in this book as well, where at the first moment where Hagrid is maybe suspected of doing something problematic they're like well you're in danger so what we're gonna do is we're gonna throw you in this like magical guantanamo bay traumatize you further but then like don't talk Mm -hmm. about it after that i mean that's another place where i think disability studies sort of casts light on what is happening to hagrid in that scene because we know that disabled people are like 
disproportionately targeted by the carceral system. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that Hagrid, you know, has already experienced this kind of targeting and the ease with which he is swept back into it, the ease with which he is turned into the scapegoat and like cast out and you're like literally sent to this horrifying prison. I really can't wait until we get to Prisoner of Azkaban and can talk about the absolute mm-hmm. nightmare that is the carceral system in the wizarding world. Like, yeah. holy shit. But, you know, it's another moment in the text that I think makes more sense if we are reading Haggard, for example, as both a racialized and a disabled character. Mm-hmm. So something that our conversation is reminding me of is what we were talking about with Lydia Exe Brown back at Tufts all those years ago, where I feel like it was them who pointed out that in the text, there seems to be characters like Filch who are squibs. So we learn about the concept of the squib, which is clearly an effort on the part of the author to include disability in the wizarding world, but a very like unsophisticated and inconsiderate attempt to include disability in the wizarding world. And then there are these characters like Neville and Luna, and now that we're talking about Hagrid similarly, who may not be intended to be read through a lens of disability. Something that I've heard listeners say time and time again, particularly about Luna, is that she really speaks to them as a neurodivergent reader, and they're able to see themselves and their experiences sort of mirrored in hers, but she does not appear to be written with the intention of reaching out to a neurodivergent audience. The characters or the ways in which disability is deliberately introduced is in a lot of ways, profoundly disrespectful and more marginalizing than empathy building. And then there are these other ways where the text inadvertently opens itself up to readings of disability in a way that readers are then able to see themselves and their experiences mirrored in the text. Luna is one of those interesting characters where you can tell that the author was like, I need someone zany, like I need a zany, kind of a different person to show child readers that you could maybe think differently, but still see the world in a way that's valuable. And like, somehow in reaching for all of these cues that would signal Luna being different, it was like she created this very like obviously autistic woman. And just like plunked her down in the middle of Hogwarts, but sort of didn't realize that she had done it. The very idea that she has like magic glasses that let her see things that are completely different that other people don't see. The image to me that always sticks out is when Harry goes into Luna's room. It's like, has there ever been a more (laughs) neurodivergent mood than like, I will create a friendship mural on my ceiling where images of my friends are linked by golden chains, which themselves are the word friend. Like, it's just, it's so sweet. It's so tender queer. It's so lovely. It's one of those examples where the author can't, even though they're like trying to create a representation that's not particularly useful to disabled and neurodivergent communities. It's like the character becomes more than their plan for the character. 
and they just get claimed. I've seen this in responses to Neville as well, where readers that are dyslexic or neurodivergent in some way have said, I see myself in Neville, even if I'm maybe not supposed to see myself in him. And uh, trans women readers as well have seen themselves in Hagrid in really interesting ways. I mean, Hagrid does say, call me mommy, and has a a pink umbrella and it's just like pretty queer in a lot of other ways. So I can see that. But it's an example of how, particularly after the author's betrayal of trans readers and queer readers and disabled readers, maybe all readers, we've seen that in spite of what the sort of structures they've tried to create around their own ideology, the text goes beyond them and doesn't actually belong to them anymore. I wonder if maybe we want to sort of conclude this conversation by turning to Harry. On the one hand with Harry, there is always this temptation to see him as the most normative figure in the text, right? It's like, oh, he's this straight, white, able-bodied male protagonist with a bunch of money. But then on the other hand, there are all these possibilities of reading Harry otherwise. For, For example, I know that a lot of readers read Harry as mixed race, and that that sort of really becomes really important in thinking about how he fits or doesn't fit into the wizarding world. And I think Harry's scar and his chronic headaches and the way that those headaches are made worse in the presence of Voldemort's magic and then introduced in this book, Harry's ability to hear the basilisk, which is figured as madness in a lot of the text that all of those point towards Harry being sort of legible as a chronically ill character, as possibly as a neurodivergent character, that there are these moments in the text that suggest that the hero himself is somebody who like experiences the wizarding world very, very differently. And we can see the text policing those boundaries in all kinds of ways, right? For example the way that Hermione and Ron see his hearing voices as a problem that needs to be solved, as a sign of something wrong that needs to be fixed. And ultimately, sort of the narrative agrees with that evaluation because the narrative also wants to solve the problem of Harry hearing voices by, you know, explaining it away by him being a parcel tongue. And that, you know, the presence of the headaches are a sign of something wrong that ultimately must be solved. And so there is constantly this attempt to sort of pull Harry back in, to like interpolate Harry back into all kinds of like normative structures. But like Harry himself as a character has all of these possibilities, these sort of ways that you can read him otherwise. Like I keep picturing the text as like, a piece of knitting that keeps snagging on things like it's trying so hard to create this like seamless narrative world in which everything sort of fits in where it's supposed to be and then there are all of these like pieces in this world that just keep snagging and pulling and that we can just sort of grab and start unraveling unraveling things and harry seems to snag onto this like the fundamental ableism of the wizarding world the example with the parcel tongue is a really interesting one because of how the chamber of secrets configures that because there's the moment where harry doesn't hear himself speaking another language he just hears himself talking to the snake in the the duel scene but then it's clear that 
Ron and Hermione have, have heard him speak in Parseltongue. What to me is really telling about that scene is Ron is basically like, oh, did nobody tell you it's evil to talk to snakes? That's actually an evil thing. And Harry was like, oh, shit, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to do that. And to me, it's like, it's such a moment of the world kind of foreclosing a particular possibility for you. If we try to imagine a more tender version of that scene where Hermione and Ron are like, oh, wow, you have this really rare ability to speak with snakes. It's probably going to make your life really complicated. But the very idea that Harry says, that's just the language that I speak. I didn't think that it was other. It reminds me of moments actually in um, in Audre Lorde's autobiography, Zami, in which she talks about when she sort of first came to consciousness that white men in particular saw her differently and how her mother would try to smooth over those negotiations. But it was a moment where like the world had to tell you something hurtful about yourself before you realized that it was different. Harry's sort of queerness in a way through, it's like, are all Slytherins queer? Is that the <laughs> argument that there's a... Like Draco, you can't convince me that Draco is not queer. And Lucius, I mean, holy shit. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Draco's, Draco's. So I agree that Harry is both ordinary and extraordinary, but he also works very well in that sense as a kind of metaphor for ableism, because there's this idea that he's just like you. He's ordinary. He comes from humble beginnings. But if you dig a little bit further into him, you discover that he has all of these powers that are masked by his ordinariness with perhaps the tacit suggestion that looking and sounding like Harry is a kind of a superpower that some characters have and and other characters don't. But Mm. that doesn't mean that readers can't queer Harry in a lot of interesting ways. In the first three books, he's absorbing so much information that the way that he sees the world is so structured by the other wizards. I think that if it weren't for that, then he would see the world in in ways that are very different. I think that we should wrap this segment. Jess, any thoughts? Yeah, take us home. Like we could have talked a lot about fan fiction in some ways and how queer and disabled viewers are always trying to reimagine the series kind of beyond its own constraints. I do think the sort of central metaphor of difference in the series ultimately can be useful to disabled readers, but it's also one of the reasons why her betrayal of trans and disabled readers in particular is so powerful because the idea of creating this wonderful sandbox world and saying, with access to magic, you can reimagine your life, you can be anything you want, you can do anything, but not you trans kids, and not you disabled kids, not really. That to me is a such a violent betrayal of the author, but that doesn't mean that we can't still find meaningful resonances with um, Mm. disabled communities in the work. I love that. And also, (laughs) every time somebody points to the radical, subversive possibilities of fan fiction, I hear thousands of our listeners rubbing their hands together as they contemplate (laughs) finally convincing Marcel and I to read some fan fiction. (laughs) And it'll never happen. Never. 
<laughs> you know what? You say never, I say we're gonna cave at some point. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 10 of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryProductions.com or OhWitchPlease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, witches, for coming with us on this new journey. If you're into the reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read the names of reviewers who left us five-star reviews. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your name while Hannah cackles with glee. <laughs> thanks to Pick Pack Pock, Dean Kerrigan, Myrtle Turtle 06, <laughs> Drinelli 13, Spencer, hmm, I'm so bad with the AEs. Uh, Spencer, Ean, mm. Ain, On, Spencer, On, uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Katie Didnar, Nicola Dizenya, Running Hands, and JV73017. Thank you all for your five-star reviews. Oh, beautifully done. Thank you. Also, don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash please. Over the holidays, we had a hoot and a half watching A Muppet's Christmas Carol together and pointing out all the ways it clearly inspired the Harry Potter series. <laughs> and uh, you don't want to miss out on the next watch along. So come hang out with us. Mm -hmm. We're fun. On our next episode, we'll be continuing our journey through Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets with a whole different focus. But until then... Later, witches! Witches!